Welcome to the sermon podcast of the Midtown Fellowship Granny White Congregation in Nashville, Tennessee. We are currently preaching a series from the book of Genesis called Back Where I Began, the search for meaning in the book of Genesis. It has been said that we can't know what we are supposed to do unless we know what story we are a part of. In the book of Genesis, God tells us in no uncertain terms what story we are a part of. We are a part of his story, a story that he has been writing since the beginning for our good and his glory. We're so glad you've joined us for this podcast, and if you are able, we'd like to invite you to join us in person for worship. We meet on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 at 3410 Granny White Pike in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, Good morning. My name is Gary Anderson. I'm the pastor in residence here at uh, Midtown Fellowship Granny White. I really wanted to uh, pull a Willy Wonka this morning and come in like I was on crutches and then throw them off and tumble, and um, I asked... Randy for the weekend off, and he said, does Jesus ask for weekends off? And I was like, well, I guess not. And um, I'm totally kidding, totally, totally kidding. Uh, I rolled my ankle back in December. I thought it would heal, it never did, and it turns out I tore a tendon in my ankle, and I had surgery on it 10 days ago. When, um, when I was looking at the calendar, I was like 10 days. Like, I figured I would be doing uh, box jumps this morning before I came into church, and apparently that's not how it works. Um, so. I hope it's not a distraction for you. Um, There's part of me that's like, is it crazy for me to be preaching like this? Um, But here's kind of what I love about it, and I mean this in all sincerity. I, uh, as many of you know, we're in the middle of a a transition here, and eventually, um, Lord willing, I'll become the main pastor. And uh, my great hope is that for however however long God allows me to preach in this place, that I will always preach with a limp, that I will always come up here bringing my true self and my broken self and my hurts and my pains. And this is just a physical representation of what I'm like on the inside. And that's not just me, that's all of us. And so um, as weird as it is, uh, I also love it. I also, I didn't say this in the first service, but I've had so many people say something about it since. I feel like I need to acknowledge it. I apologize for the level of man thigh that is being uh, revealed (laughs) in this moment. I, I never would preach in shorts, but I literally have no pants that are wide enough to fit over um, this thing that's on my leg. So it just is what it is. God accepts me as I am, and I'm going to need you all to do it too. So with that, we are continuing our series in Genesis this morning, and Molly is going to read for us, so I want to invite her up. It is a big chunk of scripture, uh, so we're going to start in Genesis 6 verse 5 and go through the end of chapter 6 and then we're going to pick up the last few verses of 7 starting in 7:22 and go through 8:1. Genesis 6:5 is where we're starting. I'm just going to pick some random verses <laughs> to great. read apparently. I'm just kidding. Here's Genesis 6:5 through 22. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in all God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. And God said to Noah, 
I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make of yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breadth of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in, and you shall keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten, and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And then jumping to, to verse 22 of chapter 7. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, I think it was three years ago now, I think it was 2019, uh, my favorite book that I read, and favorite is, it makes it sound like I liked it, I'm not sure I would say liked it is the right word, but uh, I read a book in 2019 called Just Mercy. It was before the movie came out, okay? Just Mercy is the story of a Harvard-educated lawyer named Brian Stevenson, who founded an organization called the Equal Justice Initiative, and he has committed his life to serving and advocating for the poorest and the least of these uh, in the American criminal justice system. It is a haunting uh, expose on the um, shortcomings of the American criminal justice system. Uh, he writes it kind of as a memoir, and he talks about several of the cases and people that he's been involved with over his career. But there's one story that he weaves through the whole book, and that's the story that was made into a movie a couple years ago by the same name called Just Mercy. And that's the story uh, of an African-American lumberman named Walter McMillan from Monroeville, Alabama, who in 1986 was accused of a horrific crime. The problem was that he didn't commit the crime that he was accused of. Uh, there was no physical evidence linking him to the crime. On the day that it happened, he was at a church event 11 miles away where literally dozens of people, uh, witnesses, corroborated that he was there with them that day. Um, but through a really unimaginable and unbelievable amount of corruption, uh, witness tampering, perjury, and so on and so forth, he was convicted of this crime. And though the jury sentenced him to life in prison, the judge in the case overruled the jury and sentenced him to death. And so in 1986, he was sent to death row, might have been 1987, 
for a crime that he did not commit. And that's when Brian Stevenson, the author and protagonist of the book Just Mercy, got involved. He was a young lawyer just out of law school, and he appealed Walter McMillan's case four different times. It was rejected four different times, and then through just a rather remarkable series of events, uh, he appealed it a fifth time. The truth came out. Uh, Walter McMillan was exonerated, and he was freed after spending six years on death row. The story struck a nerve in our culture. Uh, Nicholas Kristof, who's a journalist and political commentator, in his review of the book, said it infuriated him. And he was not talking about it because it was poorly written. Uh, one of the co-CEOs of a company called Bain Capital, his name's Jonathan Levine, after he read the book, he on the spot donated a million dollars to the Equal Justice Initiative because he said, and I quote, I was beside myself. Uh, Obviously, the book struck a chord, and it was made into a movie, which is always a good sign. And, and the question I want to put before us is, is why? Why such a visceral reaction uh, to that story? And, and this is what I think it is. It is because we live in a culture that highly values the idea of being a meritocracy. We are, we are actually kind of inundated day in and day out with the idea of you are rewarded for doing good things and you are punished for doing bad things. And that is really very central to the way a particularly Western culture and our culture today here in the, in the States views the world. Now, it doesn't always happen that way and we recognize that, but there is something deep inside of us that wants fairness. There is something deep inside of us that likes the idea of a meritocracy because we want good people to be rewarded for good things and we want bad people to be punished for doing bad things. And, we expect if we get the good grades and have the right GPA and have the right extracurricular activities that we should get into the school, right? If we um, have the right skills and we practice hard and work hard in the off season, we should make the team. If we have the right experience on our resume and the right credentials and we're educated in the right place, we should get the job. That's how a meritocracy works. And we have a really hard time when it breaks down. And I, I just, we can think about our own experiences to illustrate that. It's like, it is one thing to get passed over for the promotion. It is another thing to get passed over for the promotion for someone who's been at the company less time than you have, didn't go to as good of a school as you have, and you don't think is as good at their job as you are. That's a different deal, right? It's one thing to not make the team. It's another thing for someone else to make the team who you think is not as good a player as you are. It's one thing to not get into the college. It's another thing to not get into the college and your classmate does, who has a lower GPA and you're pretty sure cheated on their ACTs. We want people to get what they deserve. We want people to get what they deserve and when they don't, it can be very unsettling for us. Which is why I think the book and the movie Just Mercy struck a chord in our culture and it's why I think some of us, maybe many of us, uh, might be a little bit challenged with this passage that we are about to look at today. So we are continuing in our series in Genesis, which we have started off, uh, which we've been doing now for several weeks, excuse me. Um, I know many of us know the trajectory of the story of Genesis, but we're in Genesis chapter 6 today, and let me just review wh what has gotten us up to this point, because it helps frame what we're going to see in the text that we're looking at. So uh, the one true God, sovereign over all, king of heaven and earth, by the word of his power, spoke the world and everything in it into existence, and he said it was good. And then he created man and woman, 
and he said it was very good, and he gave them jobs to do, and he gave them perfect, unmediated relationship with him in this place called the Garden of Eden, and that was very good. And we get not even three chapters into the whole story, and God said, don't eat from the tree, for the fruit of one tree in the garden, and they eat from that one tree in the garden, and it, that's bad. And then we get to chapter four, and if you weren't here last week, Jonathan Nash preached a beautiful sermon on the story of Cain and Abel. But we get to Genesis chapter four, and Adam and Eve have two sons, and one of them murders the other son, and it's not just bad, now it's really bad. And then we get to Genesis chapter six, and the first verse that was read for us, Genesis six, chapter, chapter six, verse five says this. It says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I had an Old Testament professor in seminary who said, Genesis 6, 5 is the most damning condemnation of humanity in all of scripture. It took us six chapters. It took us like three and a half pages to get here. And everything has gone. Everything has blown up. It's a, it's a train wreck. Have we not felt this in these last few weeks? Like, have we not felt the reality of what th this story is talking about, the, the evil and corruption of humanity? Have we not felt that in this community over the past number of weeks? And I think it's part of what makes this text that we're about to look at very challenging, but also I think what makes it so beautiful. So there are three things I want us to draw out of this story of Noah, which I know a lot of us are familiar with. Um, but I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hopefully teach it in a way that might be a little bit new for some of us. So here's the first thing I want us to see. God's kingdom is not a meritocracy. God's kingdom is not a meritocracy. And that's going to be hard for some of us. So I want to give you a fair warning in this moment. Uh, I know some of us grew up in church. Some of us have been, been in church for a while. Even if you're new to church, you probably have a decent idea of what the story of Noah is about. And I am going to... I don't want to say argue, because that makes it sound like it's confrontational. I am going to teach the story of Noah in a way that is probably different than most of us understand when we come to the story of Noah, and I just want to give you fair warning on that. So here's the deal. Uh, I know the demographics of our church, and I know that many of us uh, have children in this room. If you don't have children, you were a child at some point, and I know a lot of us... Uh, have, had, have either have children's Bibles at home or grew up with a children's Bible at home. When you think about a children's Bible, if you have ever been in a children's Bible, how does virtually every children's story of Noah start? It starts something like this. It says, Noah was a good man. Noah was a righteous man. Noah loved God. Noah did what was right. That's how all, all the stories start. I remember we had a Bible when I was growing up that was a kid's Bible. There were, the illustrations in it were very sketchy. And so I'm not sure where it came from, but I can still see the picture of Noah, the opening page of the story of Noah in that children's Bible. It's like a Middle Eastern desert town with clay houses or whatever. And there's all these different scenes going on. There's a, there's a few guys um, coming out of a house with like a sack over their back where they have literally been stealing stuff from that house. There's another couple of guys who are having a street fight somewhere. They're fighting each other. Uh, there's another group of people who are drinking some kind of unsavory drinks somewhere. And then you can see in through Noah's window and Noah is in his house on his knees with his hands clasped together in prayer. And what is the message that those stories are projecting? That 
that Noah deserved to be saved. That, that even though Genesis 5 says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continue, that he was violent and corrupt, that for some reason Noah wasn't. That everyone else was just evil and decrepit. And here was this good man, Noah. And that is why God chose to save him because he was so good. Here's the problem with that idea. It is not what the scriptures teach. This is, again, I don't, I don't like, we like people to get what they deserve and so it can be a little bit unsettling. But just walk through the beginning verses of this passage with me again. Genesis 6, 5, God sees that wickedness of man was great in all the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, except Noah. No, it doesn't say that. It just says man. And we got to take that at face value. That it's talking about everybody. And then verse 6 says, The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. That is another sermon for another day that Randy is going to have to preach. Verse 7, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Basically, God is saying there needs to be a punishment for sin. And then we get to verse 8, and it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word favor in Hebrew, I'm not going to say the word because I don't know really how to say it, but that is the Old Testament Hebrew word for grace. This is saying that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And grace, by definition, is getting something that you don't deserve. It is unmerited favor. It is undeserved kindness. And so while everything in us wants to import our cultural value onto the story of Noah and say, God saved Noah because he was the only one on earth who was getting up early to have a quiet time. He tithed above 10%. He didn't use swear words and he didn't watch R-rated movies. And so God was like, you are the one. You are the one amongst all these evil and vile and decrepit people that I am going to save. That is not what this text is teaching. The hard truth of Genesis chapter 6 is that Noah was probably just as sinful as everybody else. And yet God in his unsearchable wisdom and, and grace came to Noah and said, I choose, I choose you. Now, for those of you who are like, I read ahead a little bit in the text or listening when we read it early, and you're like, but Gary, in verse 9, it says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. So how do you explain that? I'm glad you asked. We're coming to that in point two. So just hold on to it, and I think I can explain what's going on in verse, uh, in verse 9 when we get to point two. But, but some of you are like, how can you say this? Like, this is so contrary to what we've always believed about the story of Noah. Here's how I can say it. If God chose Noah because he was better than everybody else, that would be the most remarkable story in all of Scripture. Because this book, from page 1 to 1,000, whatever it is, from Genesis to Revelation, the story over and over and over again is that God saves people who do not deserve it. It's that God calls people who did not earn his favor. Abraham, he was an idol worshiper. He had no idea who God was, and God entered into his life and called him to do something way outside of anything he could have imagined. His grandson, Jacob, like don't even get me started, his name literally means the cheater. Moses was a lying murderer, and God is like, I can use you. David, he was the smallest, youngest, most unlikely of any of his brothers to be the one that God would call to be king. The disciples' skulls were so thick, it is a miracle they could tie their own sandals. <laughs> and yet God lit the world on fire through those men. The apostle Paul was a religious terrorist, literally. 
and God said, I can use you. And so why would we expect that when we come to this story in Genesis chapter 6 that is different from all of the others? Well, partly because we want it to be different, because we, we live in a meritocracy and we want people to be rewarded for being good and punished for being bad. And the fact that Noah might have been just as bad as everybody else, and yet he's the one that God chose to save, is really unsettling for us, because we, we do not like it when people get things they don't deserve. Why do the Kardashians take so much heat? Someone's like, did the pastor, the pastor in residence, did the pastor in residence just bring the Kardashians into a sermon? Because there's a lot of people who don't believe they deserve the fame and fortune that they have. And I mean, come on, do they? Like, really? <laughs> Why does every president, since we've had a president, take so much heat? Because at any given time, half of this country doesn't believe they deserve to be in the position that they're in. I'm thinking of uh, the sales manager when I was back in the business world that I had the hardest time with. And at the heart of it, it was because I didn't believe that he deserved to be in the position that he's in. Some of you right now are like, maybe this dude up front doesn't deserve to be in the position that he's in. And we'll, we'll see about that. Grace by its nature is offensive because we want a God who saves, who, who rewards good boys and good girls and punishes bad boys and bad girls, but that is not the God that we serve. The God of this book is a God who saves people that do not deserve it. And rather than being offended by that, being offended by that, can we just stop for a minute and praise him for it? Because this room in this moment is full of merit. There is so much merit in this room right now. There is. There is so much of what the world calls us to in this room in terms of achievements and success and, and everything that the world says is good. But the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God are mutually exclusive. And do you know what the scriptures say about all of our good works, all of our successes, all of our merits before a holy God? It says they are filthy rags. There's not a one of us in here who is good enough to earn God's favor or his blessing or his salvation. And so rather than being bothered by this, can we praise him for it? Because if God did not save people who didn't deserve it, we'd all be in a lot of trouble. God's kingdom is not a meritocracy. Okay, that's the first thing. Second thing is this. Uh, we have just one job. We have just one job, and that is what we see here in this text with Noah. So, uh, so now we're going to circle back to verse 9. So, And this is why... Kind of the traditional understanding of the story of Noah is that he was the good guy and that's why God saved him. Because it says right here, verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Okay, who, I think I can, I think I can help us understand what is going on here. Who do we believe wrote the book of Genesis? Moses, very good. Someone in the first service said Noah. And I was like, oh, that would be actually make a lot of sense for what we're reading here in this text. <laughs> We believe that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. It's called the Pentateuch. And we believe that Moses wrote those first five books of the Bible after the Israelites had been liberated from Egypt, before they got to the promised land 40 years later, as they were wandering in the wilderness, sometime during those 40 years, we believe that Moses wrote these first five books of the Bible. That is very important for how we interpret what we read in the first five books of the Bible, particularly this story that we are looking at right now, because what that means is Genesis chapter 6 is not a chronological telling of the story of Noah. It is not a in real time, here is what is happening. 
It is a past tense, looking backwards at the totality of Noah's life and experience that Moses is writing about this. So when Moses says in verse 9 that Noah was righteous and blameless in his generation, that is not saying that up front, and then God came to him and da-da-da-da, and boat, and flood, and all this stuff. That is at the end of his life. That is a summary statement of the man Noah. So how can he be called blameless and righteous, there are two reasons, and they are both in the text, and one of them is just right there at the very end of verse 9. It says, Noah walked with God. Why was he blameless and righteous? Because he walked with God. And then the other one is in verse 22. We're going to skip ahead, and we're skipping over a lot of stuff, but let me just summarize it for us. So here's Noah. He lives somewhere in the Middle East. Presumably, there's not a ton of rain there. And this guy, this is not a guy. That was not the right way to say it. This God, the only God, Yahweh comes to Noah and tells him to build a boat that is 450 feet long and 45 feet tall in the middle of the desert because he's about to flood the earth and Noah will save himself and the animals and the plants by building this boat. It's like if we lived in Miami and God came to us and told us to build the biggest snow plow in the history of the world. And look at what verse 22 says. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Let me summarize that a different way. Noah obeyed God in faith. And that is why he is called, in summary, a righteous and blameless man. We'll get there eventually, I think, in this series. But if we were to skip ahead nine chapters to Genesis 15, we would get to the beginning of the story of Abraham. And God calls Abraham, shows up out of nowhere, and God believes a, God, Abraham believes God and he obeys him in faith. And in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, it says Abraham believed God and God credited, credited it to him as righteousness. Why is Noah blameless and righteous? For the very same reason. Because he believed God and obeyed him in faith. Because he walked with God. And that sounds like two different things, but they're the flip side of the same coin. He obeyed God in faith and then he walked with God. To our knowledge, Noah had one big win in his whole life. And that was that when God showed up on the scene, he listened and obeyed. And that was it. That was his one job. He did what God called him to do. He walked with God and everything else flowed from that. I have spent the last uh, four years living in the Bay Area of California. And I tried to think of somebody here in Nashville like I'm about to talk about. And I just I haven't been here long enough. And I don't know if there's someone here like this. So you're just going to have to go with a California illustration for a minute. Don't hold your bias against Californians against this illustration. So the Bay Area is a crowded celebrity scene. There is a lot going on there. There are two baseball teams, not for long, but there's two right now. There used to be two football teams. There's one now. There's a basketball team. There's a hockey team. There's a soccer team. I'm probably forgetting some others. Uh, there are business executives in Silicon Valley who are household names. Like, we know them. They are some of the richest and most powerful and most influential men in the world. But I am telling you right now, as I have lived there, there is one king in the Bay Area. And he, is, he's, he rises head and shoulders above everybody else in the estimation of those who are there. For those of you who know, who, if you know Benjamin Farrell, he knew who it was before I even said it. The greatest shooter in the history of the NBA, Steph Curry. Like he just, he is a cut above when it comes to the Bay Area. And Steph has a lot of things going on. Like he has business, 
uh, investments. He has investment investments. He has real estate holdings. He has endorsements. He has subway commercials. His wife uh, is a celebrity in her own right. She has restaurants. She had TV shows. I don't know if she still does. But all of that flows from just one thing. At the end of the day, Steph Curry has one job, and that is to get buckets. That's it. And now he needs to win basketball games, and that, those kind of go hand in hand. But even if he didn't win basketball games, if he just continues to get buckets, all of those other things in his life are completely dependent on that. No basketball for Steph, their lives look very, very different. He has one, when he wakes up in the morning, there is one focus, be the best basketball player I can be. When he eats, it's like, how does this make me the best basketball player? When he goes places, how does this help me be better at basketball? When he goes to sleep at night, he should be thinking about, how do I be the best basketball player I can be? That is his one job and one focus. And the same thing is true in our lives. We have one job, and it was Noah's one job, and that is to walk with God. That is it. Like, it is very easy for us in this place, in this time, in this culture, in this community, to get very distracted. It is very easy to get confused. It is very easy for our priorities to get knocked out of whack and for us to be not sure about what we really should be focusing on, what we really should be spending our time on. But I'm here to tell you, because it's the message of this text and it's the message of, I'm telling you, the rest of God's word, we have one, fo- one job in life, and that is to walk with God. You want to be a better spouse? Walk with God. You want to be a better parent? Walk with God. You want to be a better employee or a better boss or a better leader or a better manager? Walk with God. You want more joy and less frustration? You want more more hope and less disappointment? You want more light and less dark in your life? Walk with God. And here's the thing. Can we keep it real with each other for a minute? Wow, all right, maybe not. That was a moment someone could say yes. We, we kind of stink at it. We will spend inordinate amounts of our time, our money, our resources on our hobbies. We will bend over backwards for golf, for skiing, for travel, for our kids' sports. And I'm not saying any of those things are bad at all. But, but we, will, we will pour into them. And we will go days and weeks and months without ever, ever even opening our Bibles. And this is not a, like a shame session because I am right there with every one of you all. But we have one job, and that is to walk with God. And can I share with you what I think might be the most terrifying thing about our short time here on this earth? Is that we can be successful in every way that the world calls us to be successful and fail in the ways that God calls us to be. In these last number of weeks, a lot of us have had our priorities rearranged. After what happened at the Covenant School, I think it's like four weeks ago now, uh, that was a gut check for a lot of us, was it not? It was amazing how that has, in my own life, made me think about a lot of the stuff that I used to think was really important all of a sudden doesn't feel so important anymore. And a lot of the stuff that I wasn't really focusing on all of a sudden feels a lot more important than it used to. I'm telling you, I have never been more patient with my kids in my entire life than I was in those few days after that happened. But here's the thing, and as we sit here a month later, it feels like that's starting to fade. 
And it's like, it's, it feels like it's starting to get back to normal life. And that, that, that gets further in the rear view. And, and that reordering of our priorities, that reordering of our what do I care about, it's, it's starting to slide back to the old ways. And I'm just pleading with you this morning, don't let it. That, that is a, in the midst of a horrific, un, unconscionable event. That is a kindness of God that he would use that something like that to shake us out of our malaise and out of our running after things that God is like, they cannot give you what I can give you. And, and it's why we need each other. It's why we need to gather like this. In, it's why we need to be in small groups and do life with each other. Because when I am on my own, I get really distracted really easily. And it is really easy for me to start looking at things that do not give life, that are not walking with God, and start to elevate them and say, oh, these are the things I need to run after. And I need you in my life to call me out on that. I need you to help me see that the things that I am prioritizing are not the things that I should pri prioritize. Like, I need you to be like, you don't need another pair of Jordans, even though I feel like I do. We have one job. It was Noah's one win in his whole life that we know of, is that when God came into it, he obeyed in faith and he walked with God. And the call is the same for you and I. Above everything else, above all else, when we wake up in the morning, when we go to bed at night, when we go throughout our day, we should be aiming at what does it look like to walk with God? Okay, so God's kingdom is not a meritocracy. We have one job, and that's to walk with God. And then the last thing is this, God will take care of the rest. Walk with God and God will take care of the rest. We're gonna skip ahead to the last few verses that we read in this passage, uh, starting in Genesis 7, verse 22. Um, and look, obviously a lot has happened, flood, all of that stuff, judgment for sin. There are many sermons that can be preached out of this text, uh, but I just wanna bring us to the, the upshot at the end. It says, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. God blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Chapter eight, verse one. But God remembered Noah. It doesn't say that Noah remembered God. It says that God remembered Noah. How did Noah and his sons build a boat in the middle of the desert that was 450 feet long and 45 feet tall? Out of their own strength, out of their own power? No way. That was God who helped build that boat. How, they couldn't even close the door when they got in. We skipped over that verse. God is the one who shut them into the ark. How did they stay alive on a, on a, on a landless ocean in a boat that they had built themselves for 150 days in their own strength, in their own power, in their own ability? No, it was, it was God who did that. This is not Noah's story. This is God's story. This is the story of a God who saves people who don't deserve it. He is the hero of this story, not Noah. As, as good of a guy as we think Noah might have been. Noah had one job and that was to walk with God. And God took care of the rest. My, uh, my grandfather was a pastor and he spent the first uh, 15 or so years of his ministry uh, in the Hawaiian Islands, pastoring little churches in Hawaii, which... Not a bad gig. Um, but around the time that he was 40, he was uh, invited, he was called to come become uh, the associate pastor at a church in Boston called Park Street Church. And Park Street Church is an, is an old, historic, very large 
very influential church in New England. And the guy who was the, lead, the senior minister at the time was a guy named Harold John Ockengay. And he was like a celebrity pastor before the explosion of celebrity pastors. This was in like the, the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. He founded two seminaries, Gordon Conwell in Boston and Fuller Seminary in Pasadena. He founded Christianity Today. He founded the National Association of Evangelicals. He was a PhD. He was highly respected, well thought of. And when he left the church to go become president of Gordon Conwell, uh, my granddad told me that they looked at over 200 ministers across this country to come in and replace him. So it was a who's who of the pastors in America at the time. And ultimately, at the end of the day, after a long pastoral search, my grandfather, who was not a PhD, who was not an academic, who was not well-known, who was just the associate minister of visitation, he was called to be the next senior minister at that church. Um, he followed in the footsteps of a well-known and beloved minister. Like, I feel this in this moment. <laughs> and after uh, the congregation voted, the day that they voted to call my grandfather as the, as the senior minister, he went back to his office. And in his office, there was a handwritten note on his desk. It was anonymous. To this day, I don't think anyone knows who wrote it. And this is what it says. It said, it said, all that is required of you is that you continue to be God's man. He will do all the rest. And I have a photocopy of that note in my office here at the church. And what was true for my granddad in 1969 is true for every single one of us here today. All that is required is that you continue to be God's man or God's woman, and he will do all the rest. Now listen, that is not to say that if you obey God in faith and walk with God, that life is gonna be sunshine and roses and, and easy and that all of your merit is going to be rewarded. That's not what I'm saying at all. And there are dozens, if not hundreds of people in this room who can testify that that has not been the case in their life. But here's what I am saying, that there is a good and loving God who knows the, numbers of, the number of hairs on your head. And even though it may not feel like it in this moment, he is working for your good and his glory and his plan will not be thwarted. And there's somebody who needs to hear that this morning. The pressure is off. Walk with God, and he will take care of the rest, just like he did for Noah. Now, what's maybe a little bit unsettling uh, about kind of the upshot of this whole passage is this. Um, and again, this is just a, this is a whole sermon for another day, but part of what this story teaches us is that sin has to be punished. There needs to be a punishment for sin. And what's kind of weird about it is it feels like Noah and his family, like all the whole world, the rest of the world got punished for their sins but Noah and his family got out kind of scot-free. And that's not the case at all. Noah and his family's sins didn't go unpunished. The punishment for their sins was just delayed a little bit. And we, just, we don't know how long it was because we don't know exactly when all of this happened with Noah. But uh, a little bit later, many, not a little bit, many years later, uh, there was another structure made of wood. And this time the command was not get into it, but the command was get onto it. And this time the flood was not of water, but the flood was of blood. And it was the blood of the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who hung on a cross and died to pay the punishment, to satisfy the demand for punishment for sins, for Noah's sins and for your sins and for my sins. Noah obeyed God in faith and it saved himself and his family. Jesus obeyed in faith and it saved you and it saved me. Because the promise of God's word is that for everyone who puts themselves under the blood of the lamb, 
God will walk with us. And at the end of our lives, it will be said of us that we were blameless and righteous, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. Grace is offensive. Unmerited favor, undeserved kindness, just mercy. Can we just praise God that he saves people who don't deserve it? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day and we thank you for this time. And God, we ask that the truth and the beauty of your gospel would um, sink deep into our hearts and minds as we leave this place. God, everything around us says, do good, be better, work harder, and you will be rewarded. And the truth and beauty of your word is you say, come to me as you are. I love you as you are. We thank you that you are a God who is full of grace. And, and may we recognize that that grace is meant for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.